In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. We're thinking together this summer about some of Jesus' wonderful stories and over the next few weeks, some of his parables about gardening and farming, harvesting and reaping. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, he says. Or it's like seed that was extravagantly, some would say wastefully, sown on all different kinds of soil. And in today's lesson, the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed only to determine that there, is, there are weeds growing among the wheat. And what will we do with the weeds? One thing is certain about Matthew. He warms up very quickly to any story about judgment. Of all the gospel writers, he's the one who is uh, most eloquent about the end of the world. The only one who includes mention of a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only gospel that contains the story of the wise and the foolish maidens or the separation of the sheep and the goats. So of all the gospel writers, it is Matthew who wants to make a clear distinction between good and evil, between the faithful and the wicked, the blessed and the cursed. It's something that he had in common with many of those early Christians to whom, of course, these parables were addressed. Did you notice in Mike's readings today uh, that there is one version of the parables that is delivered to the crowds and an annotated version that is delivered to the disciples? Again, Matthew's intention to separate the insiders from the outsiders, those who have ears to hear and those who are deaf. To the insiders, the message is clear. Never mind that there seem to be a lot of weeds in the world right now. Hang in there. Be patient. When the last days come, the wheat will be vindicated, while the weeds will go up in smoke. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord which may have been a comforting message at that time to a church that was being persecuted by the outsiders. But I wonder if in today's world it doesn't have the opposite effect. Not that there aren't plenty of people in our world and in the church who think that they have a corner on the truth, you know, who is in and who is out, uh, who will be saved and who will not. I mean, the truth is, most of us still like our movies with the good guys and the bad guys clearly delineated, uh, preferably wearing white hats and black hats. In our sports, we worship the home team, even if they were known as the bad boys, and we vilify the away team, though we know at some level that they are also somebody's home team. Um, in our politics, we refer to those who don't agree with us as losers or even worse, as enemies of the state. 
In our foreign policy, we want to delineate who are our allies and who are the evil empires, though in our better moments, we know that some of the most brutal dictators have been those that we supported along the way. Matthew may have been clear that there are only two kinds of people, the wheat and the weeds, but it is a clarity that escapes many of us who have encountered some of both kinds, not only in the world, but in the church, in our families, and if we're honest, in our own hearts. Because for all that Jesus, especially in Matthew's gospel, for all that he talks about the separation of the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, he was even clearer about those who thought that they were better in God's eyes uh, than others. The story, for example, about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee who prays, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like him. The tax collector, on the other hand, whose prayer is, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Or the famous story of the prodigal son, who you remember has an elder brother, uh, the good son, who stayed behind and minded the farm, but who it turns out is as separated from his father as his younger sibling. And at the end of the story, the only one we are not sure whether he will ever come into the party. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul, which is why when we are under normal circumstances, there is always a prayer of confession, an individual part and a corporate part, because we recognize that all means us. In our better moments, uh, we recognize that even some of the best things that we do in life, truth be told, we do with mixed motives. So I regularly tell those who are about to get married that we marry all of us uh, for both healthy and neurotic reasons. In the same way we go into the ministry, not only because we feel called by God, but also some of us because we grew up in dysfunctional families where we were deluded into thinking that we should somehow save the world. Most of our fields are full of mixed plantings. Sometimes I think that if I examined my own garden a little more closely, it would reveal not wheat and weeds, but rather some hybrid that has uh, come up over the decades. So this whole business about gathering and burning the weeds tends to make me a little nervous. And the burning question pun intended, is, of course, which am I, wheat or weed, blessed or cursed? Now, the lovely thing, and also the frustrating thing about parables, is that they rarely answer such questions, at least not directly. However much we want them to behave like Morse code, they tend to behave more like, like dreams or like poems, uh, delivering their message in images that talk more to our hearts than to our heads. 
Parables are mysterious, and their mystery has everything to do with their longevity because every time we come back to them, we hear something different. So they speak to us across the centuries and across the miles. But according to Matthew, Jesus doesn't leave today's parable alone. According to Matthew, he takes the disciples aside and he gives them the key. He is the sower. The field is the world. The weeds belong to the devil and the wheat to the kingdom of God. Everything in the story uh, compares one-on-one with something in the world. And like an accountant's math equation, nothing is left over. And when you hear it laid out like that, you wonder, well, why didn't he just say it that way in the first place, right? Well, some would say uh, that's the way Jesus avoided being arrested and thrown into prison. Others would say that Jesus never actually explained this parable at all, but that in this instance, um, those who later recorded his words just couldn't stand the ambiguity. And so they took the liberty of making a few additions themselves so that no one who heard them later would misunderstand. Not that it matters much, I suppose, except to remind us how much we love explanations, which are, after all, so much easier than mysteries. A parable washes over us, just full of life and light. But an explanation, well, an explanation lets you know where you stand. It it gives you something to work with. It it gives you a tool with which you can improve yourself and improve the world around you. On the other hand, an explanation is good for a children's message. It's something that you can capture easily on the church marquee. Don't let the weeds take over. We could put that on our sign out on Greenfield Road. Um, And I suspect that the servants in today's passage would have loved that message, right? These servants, they are so eager to please. They see that something is awry in the boss's best field, and they just want to fix it. Do you want us to go and gather the weeds, they ask? just wanting to be faithful servants, just wanting to be part of the inner circle. So the weeds, in this case, are known as darnel, or tares, if you were reading the old King James Version, or lolium trementum, if you went on the Joy Garden Tour and are some connoisseur of weeds. It's a plant related to the weed. It, it looks like wheat, it hides in the wheat, but in reality it is poisonous. It can cause blindness and even death if too many small seeds turn up in the bread dough, which is why Palestinian farmers in those days tended to deal with it early on. They would uproot it, um, sometimes more than once, to let the wheat and the darnel grow together just posed an unnecessary risk. 
but one that this morning's sower seems willing to take. He's a little eccentric, really, even by ancient standards, reluctant to let his servants weed his field for fear that any wheat will be uprooted, certain that an enemy is responsible for the weeds, which means that by modern standards, he is also a little paranoid. I mean, how many of you actually think that the weeds in your garden were caused by an enemy, even the neighbor who you may not get along with as well? On the other hand, I do remember reading about a guy who said that's specifically what his fraternity brothers did. Um, They sowed kutsu seeds in their rival fraternity's well-cultivated lawn, and then they waited with glee to watch as the weeds took over. In case you're not familiar with kutsu seeds, it's sort of the South's version of Darnell, except that it doesn't look like weed. It just looks like whatever it has recently consumed. And it grows at a rate of like 12 inches in a 24-hour period, and it can get as high as 50 feet. They refer to it as the vine that ate the south. It was brought here, I believe, in the late 1800s from Japan, and it was thought to be the solution to the erosion um, that was talked about after the Great Depression. But it takes over everything, So if you're going to plan kutsu, and nobody in their right mind would do that these days, but the saying is just drop it and run. But it's another good example of how the best intentions don't always yield the best results. And in this case, of the less than admirable aspects of the Greek system on many campuses. But now I digress on both cases. The point is, Sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference between a good plant and a bad one, especially when they can act in both ways. I suppose that we have all had the experience of uprooting something wonderful just by mistake. That's especially true in the spring when, for my money, everything looks the same. Or of protecting something that a couple of weeks later turns out to be just a weed. I'm not sure exactly what makes us think that we are smarter about ourselves or about other people. We are so quick to judge as if we are sure that we know the difference between the weed and the weeds, the good seed and the bad, when that is often not the case. And nowhere is that more true than in the church today. If you disagree with someone about how to interpret the Bible, you can be immediately branded as being unfaithful. If you disagree with someone about a social issue, you can be considered heretical. Your eternal destiny can be questioned. In the name of holiness, really a lot of unholy things are said and done. Just turn us loose with our machetes. There's no telling what or who we will chop down. Just meaning to be good servants. We go out to do battle with the seeds, with the weeds, and we end up standing in a pile of wheat. Or else we don't. 
We have the good sense to listen to the sower who orders us um, in ways that sound foolhardy, even dangerous. Leave the wheat and the weeds alone, he says. At least don't be so quick to judge which is which. Let them grow together, letting us know that he doesn't necessarily share our appetite for a pure crop or even a holy church. Growth seems more important than perfection. He's willing to risk a few fat weeds in order to get some fat wheat. And when we think that we know better, when we think that we can improve upon his plan, he lets us know that our timing is off, not to mention our judgment, and that after all, the field does belong to him. Which is not to say that there is no difference between right or wrong or that we should never call something the way we see it, but that sometimes in our unquestioned rush uh, to try to say that we know and to vilify those who disagree with us, we may wind up doing more harm than good and we may miss the log in our own eye. So, Hear another parable about the wheat and the weeds. One afternoon, in the middle of the growing season, a bunch of farmhands decided that they would surprise their boss and they would weed her favorite wheat field. No sooner had they begun to work, however, when they began to argue. First, about which of the wheat-looking things were weeds, and then about the rest of the weeds. Did the Queen Anne's lace pose a real threat to the wheat, or could it just stay for decoration? And the blackberries, they would be ripe in just a couple of weeks, but they were weeds, or were they? And the honeysuckle, it it seemed a shame to pull up anything that smelled so sweet. About the time they had gotten around to debating the purple asters, the boss showed up and ordered them out of her field. Dejected, they did as they were told. Back at the barn, she took their machetes away, their tools and their tongues. She poured them some lemonade and then made them to sit down so that they could watch the way the light moved across the field. At first, of course, all they could see was the weeds and what a messy field it was and what a discredit to their profession. But as the summer wore on, they marveled at the profusion of growth, tall wheat surrounded by tall goldenrod and ragweed and black-eyed Susans, The tares and the poison ivy all flourished alongside the roses and the milkweed. And it was a mess. But it was a glorious mess. And when it had all blossomed and ripened and gone to seed, finally the reapers came. Carefully, expertly, they gathered the wheat 
And then they made the rest into bricks for the oven where the bread would be baked. And the fire that the weeds made was excellent. And the flour that the wheat made was excellent. And when the harvest was over, the owner called them all together, the farmhands and the reapers, and even some of the neighbors who they had thought were enemies, and they broke bread together. And they all agreed it was like no other bread they had ever tasted. And it was good. It was very good. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.